0: Revelation, please. We're into the third chapter now as we continue this study we're doing called a divine wake up call. A divine wake up call. Revelation chapter 3. We'll begin chapter 3 this morning. Uh, Next Sunday we'll take a break and have a special Thanksgiving service. Uh, But this morning, Revelation chapter 3, as we continue our series, a divine wake up call. Revelation chapter 3. We'll begin reading there in a moment at verse number 1. I want to be honest with you this morning, I'm greatly concerned about our church. I have been for some time. I've not publicly spoken about it uh, very often. But I believe we're at a very critical juncture in the history of our church. Now, I'm not saying that to be dramatic or just for effect. I really believe that we're making some decisions. I really believe that we're taking a direction. I really believe we're settling on some things right now that will impact our church for generations to come. And my fear, my real fear is that we get it wrong, that we get it wrong. My fear is that we will not act and think biblically during these days. My fear is that we'll think only short term, only the immediate, and not think long term and not think long enough. And as I've said, I've I've had these concerns for some time. I've had a hard time articulating them. I've had a hard time expressing them. Uh, But it was there nonetheless. And this past week, it came out in a more clear way. As I was reminded of something that I'd heard before, uh, John MacArthur, in a message called The Skeleton, talking about the church, reminded me of something that uh, happens when a church ages. Uh, Most churches go through a cycle or a pattern when it comes to their aging. And those who've studied church history, those who've looked into these things, those who've looked at um, uh, churches aging through the years, have noticed some challenges As a church ages and notice some patterns that it goes through and the pattern is this the first generation in a church uh, those who establish the church those who are the founders of the church uh, it fights to discover and establish the truth and so it's it's actively uh, discovering and fighting and establishing the truth and the foundation of that church and then you have the second generation. And the second generation comes along and it fights to maintain and proclaim that truth that the first generation established and, and, and settled down. You see, the first generation, the second generation who are fighting to maintain and proclaim the truth, and then you get to the third generation, and uh, sad to say, the third generation could care less. Uh, they weren't part of the fight in the first generation, uh, they weren't part of the fight in the second generation, and what happens is the third generation will often take for granted. What is there in the life of a church? Now, I look at our church, and when you look at Red Baptist Church and the history of our church, we're well beyond the third generation. In fact, depending on how you define a generation, whether you say it's 25 years or 30 years, we're going to be 155 years old next year. So we're now in the fifth or sixth generation, depending on how you define a generation. The fifth or sixth generation of this church. And if there's a danger for apathy and complacency and indifference in the third generation, how much more is that a danger when it comes to the fifth generation and the sixth generation? I kind of chuckle. I look at some of these books they write on church and church history and church growth. And and many times you look at the patterns of how things, and they only put a certain number of years. We're well off the growth, uh, well off the, the list there as far as years. Here's what I'm saying to you, beloved. If we're not careful... If we're not careful, we can just take all of this that we have for granted and eventually lose our church. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. You say, oh, that could never happen here. Why not? It's happened to other places. It's happened to other churches. And it can happen to us. And we dare not take this for granted. We dare not just kind of brush this off. Now, remember, I'm talking about the church. I'm not talking about the buildings. I'm not talking about the church campus. Those are just tools and resources. And we're grateful for them. And we're thankful for them. But the church is the people. Uh, The church is the body of Christ. Those blood-bought believers that have covenant together. And uh, they're in Christ here. And we're together today. And as I see us as a church cycling through generation after generation, um, there's a real threat that we must face. And it's the threat of apathy and indifference and complacency. Perhaps you heard the story about the fellow who was asked what the greatest problem was that the church was facing. They said, is the greatest problem the church is facing ignorance or is it apathy? And the fellow answered, I don't know and I don't care. (laughs) What we have here is so precious. We dare not take it for granted. So I think there's a danger there of uh, growing apathetic. And growing indifferent and just taking things for granted. But I think there's another danger we face as a church as well. And we find it pictured for us here in the church of Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. Now, I don't know about you, but I found this study of the seven churches to be very enlightening. And very instructive and very informative and very convicting at times when you think about what the Lord Jesus says to these churches. If you have a red-letter Bible, you notice that all that we're about to read is in red. And all that are in the, the chapter 2 and, and the chapter 3 here, it's the Lord Jesus speaking to these literal churches. They're in Asia Minor and he's writing to them. And the additional danger that we face is this, to appear to be really alive and flourishing. To appear that way, to be really alive and flourishing, when in reality we're dead and floundering. Now, beloved, we look around today, and it seems like everything's alive, and it seems like we're doing well. We're renovating, we're growing, we're doing well financially. We're about to baptize, we're about to add new members, we're about to rededicate the sanctuary. We have beautiful children; they're singing. We see all these things going on, and. It all looks good, but how are we really doing? I want us to consider that today because the word of the church knows. And I want you to notice what he says to the church at Sardis. And I want you to stay with me for the whole entire message. Don't leave or you won't get the, the whole gist of what we're talking about today. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. And that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, plainly put, the church at Sardis was a dead church. It was a dead church. You ever been to a dead church? You ever visited a dead church? A place where there's no life, there's no zeal, there's no passion. The worship is dead. The preaching is dead. The singing is dead. You begin to wonder if the people are dead. You want to check their pulse. You ever been there? You know what I'm talking about? How does a church get that way? How does a church go from being alive and flourishing and excited for the Lord Jesus Christ to being dead? How do you get there as a church? Edward Heinzen offers some suggestions to answer that question. He said, well, first of all, some die because of tradition. Tradition kills the spirit of innovation. In other words, this is the way we've always done it, and and we've never done it that way before. And so tradition trumps everything, and a church begins to die. He said some die because of prejudice. Uh, It keeps them from reaching a changing neighborhood. We don't want them. We don't want that type of people uh, in our church. He said others die because of complacency, replacing fervency. People lose their heart in doing good, Galatians 6, 9. They just give up. And so you have have here tradition and and prejudice and and, uh, complacency. But he said whatever else goes wrong, one thing especially will kill a church. And it's to stop evangelizing. He said whenever a church stops preaching the gospel, it turns inward and self-destructs. When we get our eyes off the lost and focus on ourselves, we've lost our true spiritual vision. Churches that are not winning people to Christ are failing to obey the Great Commission. And without new converts, without newly saved people, the church stagnates. And when it stops growing, it starts to die. And so some churches, because of tradition, and some because of prejudice, and some because of complacency, and some just stop evangelizing, just turn everything inward, and time goes by, and those churches die. Jeff Lassine added that Sardis, it was just comfortable, content, coasting, and living off its good reputation. It was a cold church. So Sardis is the cold, dead church. Now, it looked alive. He had a great reputation. But the Lord of the church, the one whom we mentioned last week, was the chief investigator, the judge of the jury, offered his perfect verdict on this church. And he said, listen, you've got a good reputation. You look like things are going well, but in reality, you are dead. Now, I want you to put yourself in their pews for a moment. We know they didn't have pews like we do, but put yourself in their shoes for a moment. And there you are, the church at SARS. You've got a good reputation. People think, man, we're alive and flourishing and doing well. And the Lord of the church looks at you and he says, listen, you are dead. But here's the encouraging thing. Did you notice the Lord Jesus was not ready to bury them just yet? He didn't just stop there. He continues talking with them and he offered them counsel on what they needed to do. He offered them something they desperately needed and it was hope. He didn't just walk away. He pleads with them to respond to his counsel. And I'd like to summarize what he said to the church at Sardis with just four simple phrases. Only eight words. So you can take these eight words with you today. Are you ready for the eight words? Here's what I see. The Lord Jesus says to the church at Sardis. Here they are. Here they are, Sardis. Here they are, Red Hill Baptist Church. Just eight words. Just four phrases. Wake up. Wise up. Watch out. And walk on. That summarizes what we find here. Here. The church of stars. Now let's unpack those first of all. First of all, wake up. By the way, I'm looking out. I need to say that to some here this morning. Wake up! We're alive, we're here, I hope. Look at what he says there in verse number two. He says in verse 2 and chapter 3, be watchful. You can also translate that awake. Wake up. And the ESV and NLT translates it that way. Wake up. Now notice who's saying this the Lord of the church, the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, He says, wake up. Wake up. Be watchful. Be awake. Be alert. Do you remember we saw the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory back in chapter 1? And there we were given a description of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verses uh, 4 and um, 20 there of chapter 1, we see what's mentioned here again in chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, if you look at chapter 1, verse 4, here's what it says. John to the seven churches, which are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits... Who are before his throne. Then we're told in chapter 1 verse 20. That the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Literally messengers. And so we believe that those are the pastors of these churches. And so the Lord Jesus says to the church at Sardis. I'm the one who has the seven angels. The seven messengers. The seven pastors. And I also am the one who has the seven spirits who are before the throne. Now. What is this talking about, the seven Spirits of God? We know there's only one Holy Spirit. Uh, God, three in one. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, we can't fully understand that. We accept it by faith. It's taught in the Scripture. I think if we could understand it, our brains might explode. We just, we just can't grasp that. But we accept it by faith that God is three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So what does he mean when he says the seven Spirits of God? Well, we believe it's a reference to the Holy Spirit in all his fullness. Isaiah eleven two. You might want to jot that reference down. Isaiah eleven two talks about the sevenfold um, description. There, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so, it's a description of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord Jesus looks at the church at Sardis, and it was dead. And it needed a moving of the Holy Spirit in its midst. It needed the work of the Holy Spirit to revive them and to make them what they needed to be. And Jesus said to this church, wake up. They needed to be awakened from their complacency, their indifference, their, their, uh, their uh, ignorance even. That they were even in this pitiful situation. Jesus says there in chapter 3 uh, that he knows their works. I know your works. He said that to every church. I know that others think that you're really great, that you're really alive. But in reality, you are dead. And that's interesting. In the the Hebrew, it's necros. It means a corpse. You're a corpse. You're dead. Now, in reality, this was true about many in this church spiritually. There were a lot of lost people, we believe, in the church at Sardis. They were on the church roll. They may have even been church members, but they were lost. How do we know that? Because of verse 4. Verse 4 says, You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You have a few who are overcomers, a few who are truly born again. But that means there were a lot who were not. And we've got to remember that being a member of a church does not make a person a child of God any more than being in a garage makes you a car. It just doesn't work that way. You're not literally born because your family's a Christian, you're a Christian. You have to personally place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. You're saved by grace alone through faith plus nothing. And so each person must individually come and repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ. And the sad thing about the church in Sardis was there were a lot of people that were in that church who were not born again. They were not alive spiritually. Now I wonder this morning, are you alive spiritually? Or are you still dead in your trespasses and sin? The Bible says for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you can be saved today. You can be given new life today. You can have eternal life today. If you admit that you're a sinner and call out to the Lord and ask him to forgive you your sin and you place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. The people in the church of Sardis needed to wake up to just how serious things were. And Jesus says to them, wake up, be watchful, awake. And then we find, secondly, they needed to wise up. They needed to wise up. Notice the next part of verse 2 and the first part of verse 3. He says after, wake up, be watchful. And notice the next part. Strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. As Jesus looked at this church, he found a few things that were not dead. We know he found some believers who were not dead, but he found a few things that were not dead, but they were about to die. They were on life support. Uh, They were barely making. And he tells him, listen, I want you to strengthen the things which remain. And here's the interesting thing. They must have been doing something to have such a good reputation. I mean, it says you have a reputation that you're alive. So they were busy doing Something. They they may have been very active and very busy in whatever they were doing. And those in the community looked around and said, hey, did you hear what's going on down at the church of Sardis? And people are amazed with them, but they were busy doing something, but apparently they were busy doing the wrong things. You know, a church, if it's not careful, can end up majoring on the minors. Did you know that? We can get caught up in petty things and insignificant things that really don't make any difference in eternity whatsoever. And if we spend all of our time on petty things and little things and insignificant things, there'll be no time left over for the important things. We'll be so busy majoring on the minors that we miss the majors, the eternal things, the things that are going to count for eternity. For instance, we could spend all of our time here as a body of believers sprucing up our facilities. There's nothing wrong with that. We need to spruce up our facilities. We need to keep uh, care of things. We need to be good stewards. We're doing that right now, renovating right now. We try to keep the place clean and presentable for the honor and glory of God. But we can spend so much time doing that that we neglect evangelism. And we're not telling most people about Jesus. And then we neglect the discipleship. We're not taking those who trust Jesus and discipling them and helping them to grow. And so we neglect those important, vital things. And you let that go on long enough. And you just spend all your time on the facility or on, on the grounds or whatever. You spend the, do that long enough and pretty soon, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have a wonderful, beautiful, well-maintained, empty building. Y'all awake? It's quiet in here. Yes, we have to maintain. Yes, we have to take care of things. But we dare not spend all of our time there. We have to be doing what Jesus told us to do, to go out and reach people with the gospel. And disciple them, make disciples, baptizing them in the name and teaching them all that Jesus commanded. Now, Jesus looks at their works and he says, they're not that great. He says, I know your work and they're not perfect. They're not complete. I'm not satisfied with them. Now, I want you to put yourself in their shoes. The Lord of glory, the Lord of the church says to Sardis, listen, I know all about your works and I'm not satisfied with them. They're not what they ought to be. It reminds me that Jesus knows about our works as well. And it was time that they need to return to the basics. He says that they need to return to remember the things they've received and heard the apostles teaching, the things they were to be busy about. And they need to get back to the basics of Christianity. And beloved, we need to do the very same thing to keep coming back to the basics. Coming back to the basics. Coming back to the basics. Evangelism, discipleship, worship, fellowship. Those wonderful things. We've got to hurry up, right? We've got to keep going here. He says, first of all, wake up, then rise up, and then thirdly, watch out. Watch out. Look at the rest of verse 3. The Lord Jesus says, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. He says, first of all, you need to hold fast to the truth, guard the truth, hold on to the truth, and you need to repent. Repent, you know, is a change of mind, which leads to a change of direction, a change of behavior. You're going in one direction, you turn and go in the opposite direction. He says, you need to hold fast, hold on to the truth, you need to repent and correct what you're doing. And Jesus told them, if you don't do that, I'm coming to you in judgment. Now, listen, he says there, I'm not coming to you to feast with you or to fellowship with you. He says, I'm going to come to you as a thief. And you'll not know what I reckon. He's coming in judgment if they don't get things right. What this church needed was revival. They needed revival. It had become a cold, dead church. It needed to wake up. It needed to stop being the frozen chosen. You ever met the frozen chosen? They're there chilled out doing Nothing. It needed new life. It needed a fresh move of the Holy Spirit. It was a critical phase of its life. Did you notice the Lord Jesus has nothing really commendable to say about it? Uh, He did did have words of encouragement, though, to the faithful few that were in its midst, those overcomers, those true believers, because he said what to them? He said, I need you to wake up and wise up and watch out. But then fourthly, we're going to summarize by saying, walk on, walk on. You're walking with me now, these few that had not defiled their garments, who knew the Lord. They need to walk with him on in eternity. They would do that. Look at verses 4 through 6. You have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. By the way, the only reason they're worthy is because Jesus made them worthy. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. They have the imputed righteousness of Christ. Christ's righteousness has been credited to their account. That's the only reason they are worthy to walk with him in white. Verse 5. He who overcomes. so we've been learning over and over again. The overcomers, the true believers. We saw that in scripture. They're the, Those that are truly born again. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. He offers three main encouragements to these true believers here. First of all, he says, you're going to walk with me in white garments. White, of course, speaks of purity. It speaks of holiness. They're worthy because of Christ making them worthy. We have his righteousness credited to our account. He says, you're going to walk with me in white garments. He noticed secondly there, and he mentions that their name was secure in the book of life. He would not blot out their name. Now, here's the interesting thing. Some want to take that verse and they want to teach that you can lose your salvation. They take that verse and say, listen, this teaches you can lose your salvation. And that seems odd, but it teaches exactly the opposite. Because I want you to notice here, this is not a threat, he's saying. This is an assurance. He says, I will not blot out your name. I'll not erase your name. It's given as an assurance, not as a threat. The Bible is clear that a true believer has eternal life. Now, I said a true believer, not one who just claims to know Jesus, but one who really knows the Lord Jesus Christ, they have eternal life. Listen, beloved, if it's not eternal life, then it's not eternal life. But if it's eternal life, it's eternal life, right? It's just plain and clear. That you cannot, if you're a true child of God, you cannot lose your salvation. He says your name is secure in the book of life. And then here's something interesting. I love this third thing he mentions. And that's this. I'll confess your name before the Father and the angels. Your name will be confessed before the Father and the angels. In other words, Jesus says to them, I'm not ashamed of you. Now think of this. Now remember back, now some of you have to go way back to your high school days. That's what was interesting. I looked at those photographs. A lot of you had a lot more hair back then. It was bigger.
1: It was a different color.
0: But think back to those days. You maybe bring home friends from school or friends on the football team or whatever. You bring them. Now, you don't bring the ones around you weren't ashamed to introduce to your parents, right? Uh, hopefully, and so you say, well this is so and so or whatever, now here's what I find interesting the Lord Jesus has listened to you overcomers to those of you who truly are born again to those of you who belong to me I'm going to confess your name before my Father God the Father, and before the angels he promises to claim us before the Father and the angels oh what love, what unmerited love we find here, now here's the real question beloved, what do we do with all this? Here we are, it's 2014, almost 2015. We're in Anson County Red Hill Baptist Church. We just studied about a church way over yonder in Sardis many, many years ago where the Lord Jesus said to him, now what do we do with this? Well, you know, I started by saying that I'm greatly concerned for our church. Now let me clarify. This why I ask you not to leave before we're done. Let me clarify. I do not think that our church is dead like Sardis. I... Pray not, I hope not. My concern is that we become that way, that we get to that point. In my study this past week, I ran across a list that Chuck Swindoll made, a list that he calls the five marks of a dead church. Now, he's been in ministry for many years, uh, very wise, very scholarly, and also a very godly man. And he said, I made this list up after many years of studying the scripture, the history of the church, and decades of personal ministry. He says, here are the five marks of a dead church. And uh, it's interesting. He says that one or two of these elements might be present in any church or most churches. But when you get all five of them together, when you get all five of them together, you pretty much know that you have a church that's in need of healing and revival. Here are the five marks I want to give them to you. I want you to think about Red Hill Baptist Church. Here are the five marks that he calls the five marks of a dead church. Number one, a dead church worships its past. A dead church worships its past. Now, beloved, we have talked before together as a church family, and I'll talk to you. We're thankful for our past. We're grateful for the way God has worked and moved. We're thankful for those who have touched our lives. We're thankful for their faithfulness. Not many churches, I think, make it and are still faithfully proclaiming the gospel and the truth of the gospel 155 years later. So we're grateful for that. We're thankful for that. And we build upon that, but we dare not worship it. Because there are churches that worship the past. And the whole focus is back there and the good old days. Beloved, we dare not do that. A dead church worships its past. Here's the second thing. This is a tough one. He said a dead church is inflexible and resistant to change. It's inflexible and resistant to change. i found not a lot of, a lot of people like change. i found even babies don't like to be changed sometimes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it brings us out of our comfort zone.
0: And, and it makes us uncomfortable. We've got to, we've got to learn something new or do something new. But totally inflexible and resistant to change. Now we said some of these could be evident in, in many churches, if not most churches... But we look at the whole combination here. So think about your own life. Are you totally inflexible, resistant to change? Third, a dead church often has carnal and lazy leadership. A dead church often has carnal that is worldly, not godly, not spiritual. Carnal and lazy leadership. And so we look at our leadership. How are we doing? Fourth, a dead church neglects children and youth. I would add to that young families. A dead church neglects children and youth, young families. One of my fears is that we as a church take for granted what you just saw a few moments ago. You say, well, children make messes, and children make noise, and children break things, and children mar up things, and children take a lot of work. Well, I'd love to take you to some churches today and show you what a church is like without children, and without youth, and without young families. You'll see there may not be much of a mess. There may not be much marring. But you know what? You see a church that's slowly but surely, literally, physically dying. So don't you ever take for granted. And and don't ever discourage our young families and children and youth. But encourage them. And help them. Be grateful for them. Listen, we can repaint walls. We can put in new cars. I'm not saying we're not going to care for facilities. I'm just saying, listen, we've got to weigh out. What is this really worth? What's worth more? The life of a precious young one? Or flooring, carpet? What's really worth more? Fifthly, he says, a dead church lacks evangelistic and missionary zeal. That is, they turn inward. And you say, how do you see if that's the case? Well, you look at the budget. You look at the committees. You look at the groups. You look at what's going on there. Is it all inward? Is it me, mine, and ours? Or is there some outward as well? Now, we know that there is an element of inward in the sense that we fellowship, worship, so forth. But there always should be that outward, right? we're to go and make disciples. We're to go with the gospel. And so the moment we say, you know what, it's all about us. And we stop going out there. It's a mark of a dead church. So a dead church worships his past, is inflexible and resistant to change, has carnal and lazy leadership, neglects children and youth, young families, and it lacks evangelistic missionary zeal. I think Chuck Swindoll's right. You have those five things up and you have all those things, you're in a dead church. <clears throat> now I'm grateful. I don't believe we're a dead church. And that's why I ask you to stay to the end. Because I know somebody would well, go, my other preacher thinks we're dead.
1: <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> but I think we could die.
0: Slowly and painfully. And just as we might battle against sickness and disease in our physical bodies, we must battle against these attitudes in the church body. Now, how do we do that? I think there's some very simple things. Number one, we need to keep our eyes on the one who's in the midst of the church. The one who is the Lord of the church. The one who bought the church. The Lord Jesus Christ. If we'll keep our eyes on Jesus. And we know his passion is for the lost. And seeing people saved and discipled and growing. He's come to give us life, an abundant life. If we'll keep our eyes stayed upon Jesus, not ourselves, not what we want, we'll keep our eyes on Jesus, that'll help us in a great way to keep going on. And I think we also need to respond to the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When the Holy Spirit is working in your life, then maybe you have a bad attitude. Maybe you are inflexible. Maybe you are one of the frozen chosen or whatever. As God the Holy Spirit works in your life, would you respond to His working? Because it's His gracious and His love and His kindness. says, listen, I don't want to leave you there. I want to bring you along and I want to make you more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We realize that, if we, know that, know that we know that God the Holy Spirit and God's word never leads to apathy. And never leads to indifference. And never leads to uh, complacency. You won't find the verse that says, listen, just settle down, relax, and be sour on your way to heaven. No. God did not save us to sit sour and soak. Some people like that, you know. That's what they do in church. I'm here to sit siren soak. No, we're to go on for the Lord Jesus Christ. Each one of us individually, and then corporately this morning, we need to consider and weigh out our actions, our attitudes, our responses within the body of Christ. And we need to do that not just today. Not just during times where things are in an uproar. Not only this week, not just this year, but every day. What is my response? What is my reaction? What is my attitude? And may we all individually be bolstering life in our church, not death. May we be encouraging, not discouraging. May we be building up. That's what edification means. Building up one another in your most holy faith. The verse was shared in our Sunday class in here this morning. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And as we work together, may we each allow the Spirit's leading for the glory of God to do what He desires in this place. Because He is the Lord of the church. He is the chief investigator, the judge, and the jury. And He is the one who bought us with His precious blood. We belong to Him. We want to honor Him. And so I say to you, beloved, let's be alive. Let's be, alive. let's be awake. Let's be on fire for God. Let's respond to the Holy Spirit, and let's do that until Jesus calls us home. Father, it is with a grateful heart that we bow in your holy presence, and we thank you for this time. And Father, I thank you for the love that Jesus showed even to the church of Sardis. It was dead and dying, and yet Jesus says, "Here's hope. Follow my counsel. Follow my instruction. I want you to live." Lord, we know that's your desire for us here. Lord, we know that it's very easy to slip into indifference and complacency and apathy and just kind of coast along. Lord, would you stir us up? Would you help us to be on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ? Thank you for those you brought our way. We thank you for those who've served faithfully in the past. We thank you for those who are serving faithfully in the present. And Lord, we pray that the Lord Jesus tarries for those who will come behind us. May we pass the baton to them faithfulness, and graciousness. That we we'll be paving the way that will reach more and more people for the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, if anybody here does not know you as Lord and Savior, as so we sing this final song. Lord, I pray that they would trust you. They would call out to you. They would cry out to you for forgiveness of sin and eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Our closing song there on your song sheet, King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be, lest I forget thy thorn crowned back brow, lead me to Calvary. That's read to be beloved at Calvary. Let's stand together and sing out Lead me to Calvary uh, on your song sheet.
2: Amen.